Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy this evening and turn to chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together as believers to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your blood that frees us from sin. And we want to place you on the throne of our lives this evening to allow you to have the object of our affection, of our love, of our adoration. And as we do go into the book of Revelation this weekend, we pray that you would bless it that you would give us a, a greater understanding of you, Jesus, of your second coming. Lord, there's so many things uh, happening in our world, and Lord, we need your help. We need wisdom, and we want to be effective. I pray that we could be charged up about sharing the gospel, about sharing Jesus with others. I pray the lost would be found, that the lost would be born again. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. New versus old. Do you know when the first Honda Accord was made? Any guesses? 1976 was the first uh, Honda Accord. What if we had a brand new 2022 Honda Accord right next to that 1976? And we began to compare the two, the new uh, versus old. How about a cell phone? If you were to take the first cell phone, do you know when the first cell phone uh, came on the market, the first cell phone that was made, this surprised me, but actually beats the Honda Accord. On April 3rd, 1973, Motorola made the first mass-produced cell phone. I wouldn't have guessed that it was that, that early. So if you took that Motorola phone from 1973 and the phone that you have in your pocket and compared the two, whether you like it or not, this new phone can do a lot more than that original Motorola phone. The first text was 1992. It was made by a man named Neil Patworth. He was 22 years old, was a developer for Telcom in UK. He was a contractor, and he was providing service for Vodafone. The first text message read, Merry Christmas, and was sent to Richard Jarvis, the director of Vodafone, who was enjoying his office Christmas party. So the first text interrupted Christmas party. And we haven't been at a Christmas party since without getting a text, right? And having it uh, interrupted. So you couldn't download anything on your phone until 1998. Do you know what the first content that was downloaded in 1998 was? Ringtones. You guys remember that? You're like, there's only these three or four ringtones on my phone, and I want a cooler ringtone, so you would pay for it. And back then, it was gangbusters. They made, made a lot of money off of that. Well, tonight, we're not going to contrast Honda Accords or cell phones. We're going to contrast the old covenant with the new covenant and see that the new covenant is far better than, than the old covenant. As we study the scriptures... We want to remember the unfolding message of the Bible. What, what's the big picture of the Bible? How does these two chapters of Deuteronomy play into God's message? And it's all leading up to Christ. It's all leading up to his death upon the cross, 
his resurrection, us being in relationship with him. And God gave the old covenant, he gave the law to reveal to us our sin, to be our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The old covenant is very simple. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. There was no in-between point. And God's going to affirm that to the children of Israel once again in these two chapters. But this is preparing us for Mount Calvary, where the blessings of God now flow into our lives, not based on our performance, not based on us fulfilling the law, but based upon what Jesus has done for us. He became a curse for us so that we then could become the righteousness of God. So the blood of Jesus is what brings blessing into our lives. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, hewn for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. The children of Israel had disobeyed God. Moses broke the t- Ten Commandments. The commandments were broken even before they were given. God says, now Moses, come, and I'm ready to give those Ten Commandments to you again. God's ready to speak a second time. Aren't you so thankful that God does that? How many times in our rebellion are we not listening? And God says, hey, are you ready to listen? I'm ready to communicate to you. I'm ready to to speak to you. I look at my life, and there's so many times I'm I'm not listening to God, but God's gracious to say, I'm ready to speak this again into your life, a third, fourth, fifth, hundredth time, if you're willing to listen. Also notice that God didn't revise the Ten Commandments. It wasn't like God's like, okay, you guys didn't do very well, so now it's five. Let's try five. He sticks with the Ten Commandments. His character is immutable. It's it's unchangeable. Part of the purpose of the law is to show us our brokenness, show us our need for a Savior. He's to build the Ark of the Covenant, this wood box, and the law is going to sit inside of the Ark of the Covenant. So I made an Ark of acacia wood, hewn to the two tablets of stone like the first, and went up to the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand, And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. So God gives these Ten Commandments to to Moses to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. What is on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. In Exodus 25, verse 22, it says that God's going to meet with his people over the mercy seat. It was the blood of the lamb that was placed upon the mercy seat. And God says, it's my mercy that causes me to meet with you. So even in the old covenant, we see a foreshadowing and pointing to the mercy of God. Here's the Ten Commandments inside of the ark, the heart of God. God knows Israel's going to fall short. So he covers the law with his mercy, with the mercy seat and says, I'm going to meet with you at the mercy seat. Verse 5, then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I made, and there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Verse 6, now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Ben-Jekon to Moserah, where Aaron died, and where he was buried. And Eliezer, his son, ministered as a priest in his stead. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, how quickly we move from one person to the next. 
God doesn't really spend a lot of time on Aaron's death. It's like, yeah, he died, and his son took his place, and the narrative just continues. It's been said, if you think you're really important, just stick your hand in a bucket of water and see what happens when you take your hand out. That space just gets, gets filled up. And our lives are going to be the same way. You know, we're going to go home to be with the Lord someday, and things are going to move forward pretty, pretty quickly. In verse 7, from there they journeyed to Gudguda, and from Gudguda to Jotbaha. Sounds like things out of Star Wars to me, but a land of rivers of water. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. The Levites get no inheritance in the land. The rest of the tribes have a particular portion of land as their inheritance. The children of Levi are spread out throughout Israel with this promise that God's going to be their portion. God reserved a special blessing for the Levites as they served in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And God's teaching us there's a blessing in service. There's a blessing in in worship, and that's being close to the Lord. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he says, I've given you an example for you to follow. The joy of Jesus has been extended to us. The joy of pleasing the Father, the joy of serving others. And when we love the Lord and serve the Lord by loving people, there's a blessing that comes with it. The Lord's our inheritance. The Lord's our our portion. Some of the most fulfilled people that I know in this life are those that have devoted themselves to serving the Lord. And yeah, there may not be the earthly inheritance, but there's that spiritual inheritance of of God being their portion. In verse 10, as at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. We studied this where Moses interceded with God, and God listened to the prayer of Moses and chose to not destroy the children of Israel. Reflect for just a moment on those that have prayed for you while you had a hard heart for the Lord and how God used those prayers. Who was the Moses in your life that was praying for you? Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. That is wonderful to fear God, to to put him in his proper place, to respect him, to walk in his ways, to walk in obedience, to love him, to serve him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. The problem is us. The problem is we fall short of this. The children of Israel fall short of this. I like this quote by Spurgeon. It says, holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. Does that make sense? So holiness is not the way to Christ. We we can't earn or deserve our way to Christ, but when we're in Christ by his grace, he empowers us for holiness. The old covenant could not come close to this. Rules and regulations could not come close to this. 
but the Holy Spirit living inside of us can empower us to fear God, can empower us to walk in his ways, can empower us to, to love and serve the Lord. That's a huge difference between the old and the new covenant. How far have rules gone in your life? When you were given rules by your parents, or given rules by, by your school, I don't know about you, but it kind of incited rebellion inside of my heart. But how far does love get you? How far does grace move you down the playing field? To know that God sent his son to die for your sins. How much difference does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? Could you imagine trying to fulfill these commands without the Holy Spirit living inside of you? I mean, it's so hard even with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit. God tells us that it's not by power or by might, but by His Spirit. And so it's our relationship with Christ, the power of the Spirit, that enables us for holiness. In verse 13, And to keep the commands of the Lord and His statutes, which I commanded you today for your good. The commands that God gives is for their good. It's for our good to fear God. It's for our good to walk in His ways. I was reading the news today, and we see the governor of, of New York having to resign because of sexual harassment, and his life is getting destroyed, and he's destroyed the lives of, of others, and it would have been much better for him to walk in God's ways, right? And the same's true of our lives. We, we look at times when we don't walk in God's ways, and it's like the law of gravity, it's like, man, God's ways are right. God's ways are true. I, I didn't walk in God's ways. I ignored his word. I, I wasn't fearing the Lord, and it brought destruction in my life. The, the wages of sin is, is death. So the commands of God are good. It's how do we live in them, and that's through Christ, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pause here for just a moment, because I think sometimes we talk a lot about this, like, okay, power of the Holy Spirit, walk in the Holy Spirit, but what does that really mean? What does it mean to be in step with uh, the Holy Spirit? First, I think it's us realizing that I can't do it on my own, and to slow down enough to say, God, I desire for your Holy Spirit to, to lead me, but to walk means to be in step. So, it's attempting to be in step with the Holy Spirit. Coming home from the end of the day, into the workday, coming home. Holy Spirit, what are you doing in my family? How can I be in step with, with what you're doing? And the Holy Spirit may put on your heart to provide encouragement, to provide a listening ear, maybe to provide a, a challenge, but, but it's that openness to how the Spirit of God would work and how the Spirit of God would move. We know the direction the Spirit of God's going to want to take us, and that's love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. So you may be driving on some of our wonderful roads, and you get cut off, and the Holy Spirit will be there to say self-control, right? And we feel that in our hearts. So this is the Holy Spirit. This is how I want to respond, but this is how, how the Holy Spirit wants me to respond. The Holy Spirit may draw someone to our attention that we wouldn't have been paying attention to otherwise, and that's the leading of the Holy Spirit to go and ask them how they're, they're doing. But a lot of times we don't live our lives that way. We've got it all planned out. We've got it all scheduled. 
We, we know what we're going to do. It's, it's our agenda. It's our power. It's our strength. And the end of the day, there's not a lot of walking in God's ways. There's not a lot of fearing the Lord. There's not a lot of loving him because we weren't listening to uh, the Holy Spirit. I know for me, a lot of times it's a power struggle. It's like, I want to be in control deep down, and it's surrendering that control to the Lord. But the life of the Spirit is beautiful. The life of the Spirit's wonderful. It's an adventure of what the Holy Spirit may, may have for us. In verse 14, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. It all belongs to the Lord. He created it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses affirms, hey, God delights in you. God chose you. And the same is true for us as believers. God loves us. He chose us. It's so powerful to be loved and to be chosen by God. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcision was never just to be an outward sign, but it was always to indicate a heart that had been separated to God, a heart that had been surrendered over to, to the Lord. God's saying, I want you to have a soft heart. I want a heart that's marked by me. And don't be stiff-necked any longer. Don't insist on, on your own way. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. The God of gods, the Lord of lords, is not limited in power. He's mighty, he's awesome, and he doesn't have favorites. God doesn't have favorites. He's not a respecter of, of persons. God is just in the way that he deals with us. He doesn't have one standard for one person and then have another standard for another person. In Christ, we're loved by the Lord. It's not like God's going, well, I've got my elite favorite over here, and then these over here, they're kind of the B team. They're the ones that I love less because they really don't have their, their act together. We're equally loved in Christ. We're in Christ. He sees us in Christ. We're, you're either in Christ or, or you're not in Christ. You can't buy God off. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't take bribes? He doesn't go to the highest bidder, say, you're going to be able to control me. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Who oftentimes in life gets taken advantage of? It's those that are in need, unfortunately. It's the fatherless. It's, it's the widow. It's the single mom. It's the orphan. It's the stranger. It's the foreigner. They don't speak the language. They don't know the culture, and they're much more susceptible to be taken advantage of. God makes sure that there's justice for the fatherless, that there's justice for the widow. He loves the stranger, giving them food and, and giving them clothing. How do we know what pure religion is before the Lord? How do we know what God would really have us to do and that we've understood the heart of God? Well, James chapter 1 tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit the orphan and the widow in their trouble, in their suffering, and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. So if we are ever wondering, like, what would God have for us? 
as Rocky Mountain Calvary, it's clear. Care for the widow and the orphan. If we're ever wondering, well, what does God have for my life personally? Well, it's clear. It's to care for the widow and the orphan. It's to keep ourselves unspotted from, from the world. God's heart is, is for the widow. God's heart is for the orphan. It's for the stranger. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember that you were a stranger. You were a foreigner. You were an outcast in Egypt, and I rescued you. For us, the application, remember how God loved you. And as God loved you and was gracious to you, go and turn love people in the same way. Jesus spent time with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors, with the stranger, with, with the outcast. And he desires that we would have a heart for them as well. We go on to verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. And to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Fear the Lord. Serve him. Hold fast to him. What is your soul really clinging to? I think some of the challenges of our day, the challenges of our time, really reveal what our soul is anchored to. I think of it as a young child drowning in a pool. If you have ever gone into some water and you're not a great swimmer, terrifying feeling, right? So you've got the kid doing the doggy paddle and they're, they're sinking and dad sees their kid in trouble and goes in and grabs their, their child and rescues them. Who's holding fast to who? Well, the child's holding on to dad. Like, I'm not going to let go of dad. Dad's my lifeline here. But you better believe that dad's holding on to the kid as well. And that's the beauty of this truth is, thankfully, God's holding on to us. We're safe in his hand. But he also wants us to hold on to him. He wants us to hold fast to the Lord. When was the last time you just let the Lord know, God, I'm anchored in you. I'm not anchored in the government. I'm not anchored in the economy. I'm not anchored in my church family as, as wonderful as my church family is. I'm thankful for my church family. But I'm anchored in you. Yes, I'm thankful for my marriage if you're married. And if you have kids, Lord, that's a huge blessing. But, but God, you're my anchor. You're what I'm holding fast to. I'm linking my, my life to you. And that's the exhortation of verse 20. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. He's your praise. He who himself is, is your praise. Yes, he's done all these amazing things for you, but he's your praise. Jesus himself is our praise. We always have an endless resource of praise. I'm one of those that... When I'm studying, I like there to be music. Anybody else out there, if you're studying, writing, you want there to be music? Amber is the exact opposite. She likes it to be, like, perfectly quiet. So when, when I'm in my office, I'll tend to put on Spotify and listen to something while I'm studying uh, the scriptures. And I've noticed what I choose to listen to on Spotify is pretty important. Not that I'm listening to things that don't honor the Lord, but some of the things that I'll listen to are not necessarily like praise and worship music. I'll let you into it. It's like folk music. It's the organ coming out in me. It's like, 
you know, the acoustic guitar and just the vibe, you know, and it's, it's fairly relaxing. But after a couple hours of that, I feel like my dog died and my dad died and my car broke down. And like, I'm just bummed out, you know, it's like so sad and all that. But if I put on some worship music, it's just kind of in the background. I'm not even paying attention to it. My, my soul feel, feels differently. And it's important for us to, to stop and, and to realize, Lord, you're my praise. And, and taking that opportunity to, to praise him and to worship him for, for who he is. In verse 22, you yourselves went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has multiplied you as the stars of heaven in the, mult in the multitude. Just 70 people went to Egypt to take refuge during the famine. Joseph's already there, but Jacob comes with the rest of the family. When they leave Egypt, there are a multitude that can't be counted. We know from the censuses in the law of just counting the warriors how huge the nation of Israel is. Low estimates over a million, maybe easy to two million plus plus people. And God multiplied them into a great nation. Chapter 11 continues to affirm this message of the old covenant of love and obedience equals reward. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, his commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known or have not seen the chastising of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arms. Did I read that right? Did, did God say he's not speaking to the kids? That he's speaking to them who have seen all this? Yeah. God's saying, I'm speaking to you right now who have experienced God delivering out of Egypt. I'm not speaking to your children. And oftentimes when we're studying the word, when we're hearing a message, when we're reading something about the scriptures, we go, this would be a great message for my kids. This would be a great verse for my kids. My, my kids really need to hear this sermon. Or someone that you're mentoring, someone that you're helping, somebody that you're serving. And there's a place for that. But what God's saying right here is you, you don't forget what I have done in your life. You don't forget the Egypt that I've brought you out of. And we need to pay attention to that tonight. What is the deliverance that God has brought in your life? How did he bring you to Christ? How has he been faithful to you? What are the pharaohs that he's defeated? What are the Red Seas that he ha has parted? And allow what God has done in our lives to, to move us to that place to loving the Lord afresh. In verse three, his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. What he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their household, their tents, and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of all of Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did, reminding them these are all of the things that the Lord has done. 
Could you recount in a small paragraph the highlights of the things that God's done in your life, the, the bullet points that he's done in your life? Could you expand on those, those bullet points? And as that anchored deep within our hearts and our lives. In verse 8, Therefore you shall keep every commandment which I commanded you today, that you might be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. So in response to God's deliverance, keep the commands and take the, the promised land. It takes courage and strength to move into the things that God has for us. In verse 9, that you may prolong your days in the land which you swore to your fathers, to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. So, so in order to water their fields in Egypt, they had to water it by, by foot. A lot of work carrying all the water to the plants. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land from which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. So the promised land has built-in peaks and valleys to where the water's going to flow to fertile ground for them to be able to farm. This is an amazing promise that God makes about Israel, that God cares about Israel, and his eyes are always on it. Have you noticed such a strategic piece of land that God gave to the Israelites? And the land itself and the people have special interests of God. And that's, that's what the, this is declaring to us. Pretty fascinating. Verse 13, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commands, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I'll give you the rain from your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. Are you seeing this? Are you following this? If you obey then you're going to receive blessing. You're going to receive rain for your crops. It's, it's all dependent in the old covenant upon your obedience. In verse 15, And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Nobody else can take heed to your heart. They can challenge your heart. They can speak into what they see in your heart. But ultimately, we ourselves can only take heed to what's going on in our hearts and our lives. And, and God says, take heed yourself, lest you be deceived. It can be in that place where you're, you're completely deceived by, by sin. So pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Pay attention to that conviction from the Word of God, from the Spirit of God. Verse 17, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. You disobey, there's no blessing. There's no rain. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul 
Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. Putting God's word always before you is the challenge. Is it good for us to always be putting God's word before us? Absolutely. It's just the question of why. Why am I studying the word of God? Because I'm trying to earn or deserve his favor? Or because I've already received it? I've already received it in Christ. My sins have already been forgiven. So I want to get to know this great love of the Lord. I want to understand his love letter. Be a person of the word because you want to get to know the Lord more. Not because we're trying to earn or deserve his blessings, but God, I want to know you more. I want to spend time in the word. I want to meditate upon it. I want to memorize it. And as God's word is in their hearts, verse 19, you shall teach them to your children, speaking to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So your love in the Lord, God's word is in your heart, you're a person of the word, doing life with your kids, and as you're doing life with your kids, you're, you're speaking to them the word. You're, you're speaking to them who, who the Lord is, looking for every opportunity. When you're sitting in the house, when, when you're walking, when you're driving in the minivan, when you get up and when you, when you go to bed. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You, you post the word of God. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of heaven above the earth. For if you carefully keep all of these commands which I commanded you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all of these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. So obedience equals promised victory. That's the old covenant. New covenant, what's the source of our victory? Is it our obedience or Christ? It's Christ. Romans 6, the old man has been buried and we're risen in newness of life to where we no longer have to be slaves to sin. That sounds like victory. How is that victory brought about? Through what Christ did for us. But the old covenant was, if you're going to experience victory, it's all based upon your works. In verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. The promised land, Israel never entered into occupying all the promised land that God had given to them, only a portion. In order for us to enter into the promises that have been given to us by God, you got to put your soul, your feet there. You know, what comes to mind is God wants to save the lost. For us to experience that, we got to step out in faith with those that don't know Christ as their Savior, to love them, to, to share the gospel with them, to be in, the, in, their, in their lives. So it does take those steps of faith to experience the, the promises of God. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. This happened when Joshua went into the land we see that they were afraid of the Israelites. This took place even when Joshua and Caleb spied out the land. They were freaked out about the Israelites. 
We know Rahab, she gives the testimony in the book of Joshua of the fear that the Canaanites had of, of the Israelites, and that was the Lord's doing. God was with them, so no man could stand against them. In verse 26, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. That's the message of the Old Covenant. Here's a blessing, here's a curse. Here's life, here's death. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Now, it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the cursing on Mount Ebal. So Mount Gerizim was the mountain of blessing. Mount Ebal was the mountain of cursing. Joshua 8, they actually did this. They put half of the Israelites on the Mount of Blessing, half the Israelites on the Mount of Cursing. How they chose who got to go to the Mount of Blessing, I don't know. But then they would read from the law. Here's all the blessings from Mount Gerizim. Amen, amen, we're all in on Mount Gerizim. Read the cursings. Amen, amen, we're we're not going to walk in disobedience. And they were well-intending, But what did the children of Israel do? They ended up disobeying God. And they ended up experiencing the cursings that are represented on Mount Gerizim. And there shall not on the other side of the Jordan, are there not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moreh? For you will cross over the Jordan and go in and possess the land which the Lord God is giving you. And you will possess it and dwell in it. And you should be careful to observe the statutes and the judgments which I have set before you. How long did it take for it it to become a mess for the children of Israel after they possessed the land? One generation. The generation after those that took the land is represented in the book of Judges. And it says that they didn't know the works of God. They, they didn't experience God defeating the giants, defeating the walls of Jericho. The next generation started doing what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges is an absolute mess. An absolute mess. I think the book of Judges really parallels and paralyzes It shows our culture today of just do what's right in your own eyes. If you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't know him, man, doing what is right in your own eyes as an individual, as a culture, as a society is a complete mess. So then the next logical choice for Israel, well, they need a leader. They need good leadership. It all hinges on the next election. Did you know everything hinges on, everything hinges on the next election? So Israel fell into that mindset. And they elected the best leader that they had possible, which was Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was wise. He was everything that human leadership looked to. And they looked to Saul And he failed miserably. And he failed miserably. And the rest of the chronicle of the kings is there were some good ones and there were some bad ones. And there were some good ones and there was the bad ones. It sounds a lot like human leadership throughout history. It ebbs and flows from good leaders to bad leaders. 
but the overall trajectory of Israel was one of complete disaster in this waffling of leadership. It turns out they couldn't do what was right in their own eyes. It turns out they needed more than a good human leader. It turns out they needed a savior, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. There's another mountain, not Mount Gerizim and not Mount Ebal, blessing and cursing. You guessed it, Mount Calvary, where Jesus went and he became a curse for us. He took the curse of the law upon himself so that we could be extended forgiveness. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God are in him, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. All of the promises of God are in him, yes, and amen. So the blessings of God come into our lives through Christ. As he died for our sins and rose again, and we believe, we receive all of the blessings of God. In Galatians chapter 3, it says this, Yet the law is not of faith. So if we relate to God through the law, it's not of faith. It's based on our own works. But the man who does them shall live by them. That's fair. If you, you obey, you're going to be blessed by the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This cursing that we're reading about haven't become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So how did we receive the blessing of Abraham? How do we receive the blessings of this passage? Through Christ. Through Christ being the curse for us. So, do you have a rules-based relationship with God? Do you feel like you still relate to God more through the old covenant mentality. Bro, you're driving a 1976 Honda Accord. You're rolling up in here with the 1973 Motorola cell phone. You're in 1998 downloading ringtones, right? And here's this new covenant. And it's the new covenant of God's grace in Christ Jesus. But yet we're still over here going, well, God, I did my devotions today, so I'm looking for a cookie from you, you know, throw me a bone. I read, I read my Bible. Oh, I, I didn't read my Bible today. I guess you're going to punish me. I, I guess I, I really don't have closeness with God because I didn't read my Bible today. Hey, I, I tithed. God, I gave my 10% to you. I'm waiting for the kickback with interest, right? Got this workspace relationship with God. God's not going to be a debtor to anyone. And honestly, if God gives us what we deserve, look out right? Or do we have a relationship with God that is rooted in the new covenant of God's grace? Jesus, I don't earn or deserve your favor, but I believe you love me because you died for me and rose again, and my sins are forgiven. And I desire closeness with you and victory over sin by your grace for your glory. And don't get me wrong, the new covenant doesn't cancel a calling to holiness, God does call us to, to holiness, but it's the whole reason of why. Why is God calling me to holiness? Because I'm trying to earn his favor? No, because I've already received it. I've already received it. I would imagine there's a lot of different kinds of marriages, right? There's probably some marriages that are a lot on merit-based, 
well, I did this for you, so you're going to do this for me, and we're really scratching each other's back this way. But then there's probably some marriages that they're really based on God's grace. There's an unconditional acceptance of one another. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to serve you. And I would imagine a grace-filled atmosphere in a relationship goes a lot further than a law-based relationship. How much more so with God? As we really understand his grace and understand his forgiveness, it moves our hearts to say, God, I want to. I'm compelled by your love because you've won me over by your grace. So in the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins. In the new covenant is the favor of God. In the new covenant is the motivation for holiness and also the power to be able to live a holy life. In the new covenant of God's grace, let's place Jesus in his proper place of being at the throne of our lives this evening. Saying, Jesus, I want you to be in charge of my life. I want you to have my affection. I want to fear you. I want to love you. I want to serve you. But I realize the reason that I'm doing this is because you first loved me. It's not that we love God, but that he first loved us. So Father, we do pray this in tonight. And we thank you for the new covenant. We pray you take us deeper in, in understanding your contract with us, your commitment to us. Jesus, that you became a curse for us so that we could be forgiven. Help us to understand what it really means to live in the new covenant, to live in the spirit. And God, would you move us to greater maturity, greater, greater holiness for, for your glory? There's something that only you could do in our lives. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.